0: Hello, welcome to the VJ Hemonk podcast. Today we are discussing the questions, how do we more effectively apply precision medicine and how do we bridge the gap to CAR T cell therapy in the management of non-Hodgkin lymphoma? CAR T-cells have been an exciting development in immunotherapy, and more recently a main point of discussion at the International Workshop on Non-Hodgkin Lymphoma. In this intriguing session, John Gribben is joined by Anas Yunus and Karen Jacobson to discuss the use of CAR T-cell therapy in Non-Hodgkin Lymphoma. During this conversation, we hear the experts' thoughts on drug screening and approval, and the use of various methods to collect T-cells from a patient undergoing CAR T-cell treatment. The group finally turned to the questions of identifying pre-existing treatments for patients entering CAR-T therapy and how we can use a more formal approach when picking a safer and more effective bridging therapy.
1: I'm John Gribbin and we're here at the end of day two of another very successful international workshop on non-Hodgkin's lymphoma 2018. Our last day in sunny Nice before returning back to think about everything we've learned here and start putting it into practice. I'm joined by my co-chair, Anis Eunice from Memorial Sloan Kettering, Karim Jacobson from the Dana Farber at Harvard, who runs the CAR T cell programs there. So another a very nice day. So you uh, chaired uh, Annis, the first uh, session on on precision medicine, and um, of course we've all got very good ideas of what precision medicine means, but actually it's quite hard to articulate and put into words exactly what that means nowadays. There's a kind of feeling often that the panels and the information we can have from our patients has gone ahead of what we're actually able to do about it. So you see patients all the time at Memorial who've got this whole kind of panel of things. What kind of conversations does that lead for you to have to your patients about how you talk about applying precision medicines in the way that we were talking about in the session this morning?
2: So uh, it is frustrating if you're a patient to know that whatever treatment we give them, it's hit and miss. Mm-hmm. You know, we say, you know, 60% chance you may respond. But, but then it's even worse when you've got a piece of information that says it's even more missed than that, That's right? correct. Yeah. It could be even lower response rate than that. But what I tell my patients, this is statistics. For the individual patient, you're either 100% response rate or 0% response rate. That's what it is. There's no, no, no 60% response rate for each patient, right? So we're trying to... In, increase the chances of you are going to be among the 100% responders than not. That's what basically is a nutshell. But the reason why we had this, this discussion is mainly because the multiple failures of the clinical trials that you and I and you know about, that the standard chop plus drug X has failed over and over and over again. And the question, should we come up with different strategies? Should we you know use more precise biomarkers? Should we use chop plus drug X in a more defined group of, of patients? Or should we now move to a new strategy, which is r dr-
1: followed by Drug X based on using circulating tumor DNA? Mm, sure. And, and in terms of what that drug should be, you'd then I, I liked your approach of different kind of baskets of, of trials of of being directed by biomarkers as to which particular direction a patient could go could go into. Do you think the regulators are going to buy that kind of of a, of a process, or do you think we're going to land up having to use drugs that have somehow gone through some other kind of 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 approval process to be able to get access to them? So there's precedent for approval, right? I spy Mm. for breast Mm -hmm. cancer. They got
2: approval based on this design. This, of course, is challenging. Not every bucket is expected to lead to drug approval. But yes, there are precedent for this, and we're hoping that some of these... For us, I think this master lymph protocol that we're talking about, to me, the way I see it, this is for screening, not for drug approval. If we find a doublet, let's say, that works in a unique, well-defined biomarker uh, driven in, in way, I think you can hand it over then to whoever, a sponsor or CTEP, whoever want to do, confirm it to the trial, to lead to drug approval. I don't think our job is to get drug approved. Mm. We're screening, basically.
1: Yeah. But of course, it's like everything else, without the approval, how do we get our patients to get access to, to that drug? I guess also thinking about the patients that you end up taking to CARS, there is of course this question of bridging them and bridging them safely and getting the patients through that transition of getting them into your hands and through that process of, 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 of doing it. Was there anything you heard on the next section that we talked about either precision medicine there or in the novel drugs that you thought oh gosh that's a kind of useful approach that could be beneficial?
3: Yeah, I mean, so I think um, there are there's clearly some patients whose disease can be stabilized or who can respond to drugs like abrutinib, and um, there's that, there's potentially even a um, beneficial effect in that setting of pre-treating someone with abrutinib and then giving them their CAR T cells back so that they uh, the T cells may even work better. Um, but something that was very intriguing um, is the um, the high response rate and the depth of response that we're seeing with polatuzumab combinations, mm. the anti-CD seventy uh, nine conjugated antibody. Um, um, and, you know, I think that, that, you know, that that may offer, you know, something for a traditionally chemo-insensitive group of patients um, to debulk their tumors um, to make it not only, the CAR T cells not only more effective but potentially safer as well.
1: What I didn't know and it didn't come out from Laurie's talk on the POLA was how much cd 79 depletes also normal B cells. So, in other words, would a patient being bridged to a CAR T cell approach with POLA Lose some of the cells that drive the proliferation that you perhaps need of the CAR T cells once they're in the body.
3: I mean, these patients have also had a lot of rituxin as well. I mean, at this point, you know, maybe they're maybe they're CD20 negative B sure, cells yeah, that are still sure. hanging around, but um, we give a lot of B cell uh, depleting, depleting therapy, therapy sure. um, in its stead. So, uh, you know, I, I I'm not sure if um, if that's going to be as important. Um, but uh, this is why I think that in terms of picking a good bridging therapy, it really does need to be studied in a formal manner. I think right now people are doing a lot of hodgepodge things and th- we have no idea what we're doing um, to the chances of the T cells expanding, um, to the, you know, to ultimately toxicity or efficacy in these patients.
1: Yeah, it's so, a but it didn't occur to me to ask the question until after Steve Schuster raised it in the CAR T cell section, which you chaired, uh, about the whole issue of whether any of these types of therapies actually impair our ability to collect T-cells for a CAR T-cell patient. I didn't ask that question as we we're going through the the section. And of course, I guess we've got a very good sense of what happens to the therapies we use, but it's a big unknown if you're using an unknown drug, what impact it may have on that T-cell uh, population.
3: I mean, I think right now we don't really know anything about the T cells we're collecting from the patients or the products that we're giving back. Yeah, I think we have a little bit of insight from from Juno in terms of their defined CD four to CD eight ratio, but the other companies are giving you know whatever they're giving whatever T cell product back to the patient. Um, I think you know we all are interested in they all they have some of that T cell product, and we should be able to learn more about what the composition of that product is um, and whether there's a certain ratio of different immuno immunophenotypes of T cells that are given back to patients that are associated with better efficacy and less toxicity. Um, so I think that's going to be a big move um, and um, something that comes out in the, in the, shor- in the short term because I think that's really definable. Um, and then I think also, you know, the numbers looking at prior therapy, what the prior therapies are, are very small, but people are looking now at, you know, how did patients do following abrutinib prior therapy? How do they do following lenalidomide prior therapy? Different, different drugs that we know have immunomodulatory Properties to see if there's any um, improvement in T cell health or detriment of T cell health in terms of the product that's collected.
1: And of course, now George Deng stood up and asked a question which I hadn't thought of before either. Is that is as CAR T cells move earlier forwards, as we're clearly seeing that they're doing and everyone's excited that that's the way forward and has curative potential, that it actually decreases the pool that he can have to have patients enrolled in other studies. Now, I think Steve Schuster said, so what? But, yeah, you know, because I mean, yeah. we've got a better treatment, that's, that's the, new, uh, the new issue. But um, is, that, is that, that your experience, You're, you are seeing patients earlier and fitter now than you did in the past or is it still pretty much the train wrecks that are arriving referred in from elsewhere coming to your institutions for CAR-T cells?
3: I think uh, as a as a rule, um, patient people are identifying patients earlier. So especially patients who either are refractory to upfront therapy or who relapse early, um, people you know out, referring phys- physicians know at that point that that's likely going to be someone who may end up getting CAR T cells, um, and as a result, they're sending them in ahead of second line therapy. Um, both because there are now second line trials for those patients, uh, and they're you know they potential potentially can be enrolled on those patient, on those trials. And also because um, they want them in line so that if they don't respond to the next line of salvage chemotherapy, um, you know, you're know, you not then waiting a month or two before they can ultimately get treated. So, we are actually probably seeing patients ear- referred in earlier, and as a result, their disease is under, uh, under slightly better control than if they're just found out that they were growing through second-line therapy and, and get in to see you a week or two later.
1: Sure, sure, sure. Yeah. And the impression seems to be that the better the patient coming in, the the more likelihood you are to successfully get the patient through. But in the real world, as you mentioned, right,
2: that 50% of patients who are getting on commercial cells wouldn't have qualified for the uh, clinical trials, right? Mm -hmm. So we're getting a really mixed bag of different things, Mm -hmm. which is interesting to watch. We'll see what will come out of it, uh, if the the high response rate will be maintained, Mm -hmm. or the safety will be maintained in these patients.
3: Um, yeah, I think. I mean, I think that you're, we'll hear this data soon, um, and I think the. Um I think that we're, we're able to get these 50% of patients that weren't eligible for clinical trials safely through. Um, it's not just about uh, organ function and performance status, but it's also about histologies, right? These, these clinical trials enrolled patients with specific histologies, but people are referring people in now with transformed marginal zone lymphoma, with transform transformation from CLL. Um, and you know these, these, are, the, these lymphomas don't seem to be exactly the same, and I think that may actually impair um, some of the real world efficacy results that we see.
1: Now, one of the things I was really impressed by in your session was having a neurologist there. It's very unusual for us to have a non-oncologist come to the meeting, but I thought she actually contributed enormously uh, to being there. And I was also struck by just incredibly how knowledgeable about not just the neurology of the CAR T cells, but the patients that she's treating that she was. It was actually very impressive. So it's nice to obviously be thinking about how you develop a a really skilled, multidisciplinary team to manage a patient through this toxicity.
3: Not different than for allo transplant. Yeah. Um, it's a, just the specialist or something yes. it different. Yes, yeah, um, You know, at the Farber, we we also have a neurointensivist who's had taken an interest in this, and you know, he's going to publish his own publication about what he's seen um, in our patients. Um, and then you know, we also have had we've seen some cardiology uh, toxicity related to the cytokine release. So we have a cardiologist who's been following these patients, and they're 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 all very interested in you know doing their their own research and trying to figure out uh, preventative mechanisms or screening mechanisms uh, to minimize toxicity. So it's it's like allotransplant, just a different group of specialists.
1: Well, it sounds like it's like allotransplant, but a little bit better, because what I picked up from that session was although the neurotoxicity shouldn't be diminished, what everyone says was that it's We've got a better handle on how to do it, and it is self-limiting and is reversible.
3: Yeah, I think the you know whenever you're trying to, to talk to someone about an allo transplant, it's the unknown risk that sure. you don't know what to tell them. You don't know what to, you don't know what to tell them that they're going to be like six months after the allo transplant. And I, we have a pretty good idea of we're able to pretty confidently tell someone what they're going to be like six months after CAR T cells, and it's going to be very similar to when they, before they got sick, as long as they respond well and have their disease improve.
1: So there we have it. So yet again, at the end of the second day. I think you can pick up from us the excitement we felt at the three, I think, pretty wonderful sessions that we had today. And that's IWNHL 2018 over and we look forward to seeing you all next year in Cambridge, Massachusetts for IWNHL 2019.
0: So what do you think? Can CAR T-cells offer curative potential for patients with non-Hodgkin lymphoma? Or do we still not know enough about the risks associated with this therapy? Find us on Twitter and get involved with the conversation on our page at vjhemonk. And be sure to keep up to date with all the latest Hemonk news, including cutting-edge content straight from ASH 2018 at vjhemonk.com.